Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Good to see you all here this morning. Beautiful day outside. How are you? How are you doing? <laughs> Good. Either I'm feeling a little stiff or you all look a little stiff. I'm feeling like we need to loosen up a little bit here. Make some small talk. <clears throat> We're going to continue in our series this morning uh, through the book of Romans. Uh, Paul has spent the first five chapters kind of at uh, 30,000 feet, going over lots of big ideas and theological imperatives. And then he's kind of bringing the plane down a little bit lower, and he's getting into the details of the self and of life a little bit more. And uh, the passage that was read for us beautifully by Rick, um, it roughly divides into two sections, the way I'm going to look at it today, uh, verses 1 through 7. And verses 8 through 14. Okay, the first section I'm calling die. And the second section I'm calling live. Um, and I have a few uh, comments I want to make before we get to these points. Uh, the first is that uh, in my personal experience of growing up in the church and uh, my own uh, salvation and theological journey, I think has been uh, a little bit traumatic for me uh, in this regard. When I see the words die and live, and Paul talks a lot about that here in the passage, um, I have a sort of a, a cynical reaction to it, like an emotional reaction. And part of my story is that when I was uh, in uh, high school and before that, I grew up in, a, in the Presbyterian church, and uh, I'm Korean-American, immigrated here in 1981 when I was eight years old. And uh, every Korean you've ever met in America, they're Presbyterian. And even if they say they're Methodist or Pentecost, they're still Presbyterian. And uh, that's because the first missionaries are Presbyterian, and that's sort of the foundation of uh, what Christianity is. To be Christian is to be Presbyterian in Korea. So uh, that's my background. And with that came the whole tradition of Reformed theology. And uh, heavy in that thinking, in the way I experienced it, was sort of, you're a sinner. You're a bad person. Your nature is corrupt. And uh, I uh, was part of a lot of sort of prayer meetings and sermons where I sort of felt bad about myself and about my life and guilt and shame and kind of down about the self. And that's sort of what it meant to be a Christian. And, you know, if we went to a church retreat, it's because you felt really bad. It was a great retreat, you know. <laughs> That's the way it was. Um, and then when I was in college, uh, I got into a different circle, and I was part of this sort of charismatic church. And uh, theologically, they were Armenian. So they believed, they told me this, that you can stop sinning. Like, you can live into your perfect nature that Jesus Christ now has given you, and you're no longer a slave, and you're free. And the only thing that's keeping you uh, acting like a slave uh, to sin is because of, you know, habit and your memory lapse, and you're just forgetting that you don't have to be. And, um, and so they would have lots of good stories to illustrate that. And I remember one of these guys, older guys that tried to mentor me um, as a student, 
he told me he hadn't sinned since the 1980s. <laughs> like he knew the day he stopped sinning. Very different than going to a retreat and pounding on the ground because you feel so bad about yourself. You know, he felt great about himself. His name was Trevor, by the way. (laughs) Um, And so there I bring all that baggage to this passage. And I don't know what kind of reaction you had as uh, this passage was being read to you. But um, I have experienced Christianity and life and myself and relationships far less black and white than this passage sometimes can lead us to believe. It's not this clear cut for me. I I have a hard time saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I don't know how to think like that. I certainly don't feel that way. And if you ask my wife, she will tell you, I have not arrived. I have, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody who was once blind, but now can't see it. He's still groping in the darkness as far as she can tell. And that's the truth of it. For me. And so I bring that with you. I don't know what your reaction is. But here's what I want to do today. Uh, I want to sort of take the truths in this passage. And I want to try to make it, help you experience it as practically as possible. Because that's kind of what I need. I just need just some more uh, rubber hitting the road with passages like this. Because of the baggage that I bring to it. Because the other alternative is I just think this is irrelevant. And I know my Bible isn't irrelevant to me or to my life. So I know I'm missing something. And so uh, I'm going to try, try really hard to be practical. Uh, one example of something that's very practical, that's been helpful for me, uh, is 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. And it says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Now, the, um, the, the main metaphor that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God is one of marriage, right? And so, for years, I just thought, you know, I really, really love God. This whole marriage thing and... Susie thing and Peter thing, this is, this is no joke. This is messy. And there's a lot of things other than love playing out in this marriage. But God, I love him. And then I came across this little uh, passage where it says, actually, Peter, the reality is somebody who's visible to your eye is easier to love than somebody who's invisible to your eyes. That was really not helpful for me. <laughs> because I want it to be easier to love God. Because I can always say, I love God. But people, they're really hard. The other thing that this passage is saying to me is that I have one reservoir that I draw from to relate to anyone, whether they are visible or invisible. And so I can't say, I hate my fellow brother but turn around and then out of that same reservoir say, I love God. Because I'm the same relational person. My capacity for love and relationship is all the same. 
And I bring that same self with me, whether I am talking about God or spouse or friend or colleague or anybody for that matter. This passage, this verse right here doesn't give me a lot of wiggle room. But I really, really like it because it makes it practical. And so if you want to know, for example, how your pastor is doing with God, like what's his relationship with God like? You want to know? Ask me how I'm doing with my wife. And you're going to see a pretty direct correlation. When I'm feeling connected to God and there's tenderness in my heart, guess what? Guess where God is with me? Yeah, not far behind, just right there. But Susie always leads the way because she's visible. That's what this verse says. It's easier to love Susie. So if I'm loving Susie at like a nine or an eight, I think it's around eight or nine right now. God is probably like a six or seven, right? Maybe on a good day, like pushing eight. That's how it is. And so this whole deal with sin and self and dying and living, I really need it to be practical like that. I just need something that's clear that way, okay? Uh, that's precisely why I have titled this sermon um, spiritual warfare. What do you think about when I say spiritual warfare? Like demons, right? Think about demons. And, you know, sometimes I wish my problems were demonic in nature. I could just cast them out. In Jesus' name, be gone. And then I'm like, awesome. But it's not that simple, is it? Because spiritual warfare really is practical. It has to do with the stuff that is about me and my day-to-day life. And so what I want to do is I want to take that term for spiritual warfare and just bring it real close to home. So it's not just safe for the elite people who deal with demons, you know, but it's, it's for us, for you, for me. Okay, you got that? Very important to bring sort of, I think, that honesty to this passage. Okay, first, die. Uh, Paul begins with this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? I think that's a really, really fair question. Paul has spent a whole chapter expositing the truthfulness of grace. After reading chapter 5, I feel like, oh my gosh, the one thing I need in my life is grace. In fact, I need it and I want it. I love grace so much, I am willing to even sin so that I can have more grace. That's what Paul assumes his readers are thinking. And that's why he's rhetorically asking and then answering this question, right? It makes perfect sense. I am even willing to sin. Uh, Should I do that? Honest question. And then he answers it in uh, verse 2. What does he say? He says, may it never be. If you are somebody underlining your Bible or something, this is the passage you want to underline right here. May it never be. It's a, a very simple sentence. It's just two words in the Greek. And it just literally means it cannot be. It begins with the word not be. That's all it is. It cannot exist. It cannot come to pass. 
And so Paul isn't saying, he's, he's not wagging his finger and saying, don't you dare think like that. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, you shouldn't think like that. He's saying, that's a dumb question. That's not even real. You're totally missing the main thing. If you think that because you love grace so much, maybe you should sin more, that grace may abound all the more. It cannot be. That thinking cannot be. Why does he say that? It's because grace that he's been talking about in chapter 5 leads to, as we discussed over the last several weeks, grace leads to transformation. Grace leads to repentance. The way the Bible puts it is, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not like God threatening you that leads to your repentance. But for you to have a change of heart and mind, the thing that does that for you is kindness. When you experience kindness, when kindness touches your heart, it causes your heart to change. And the Bible also says that it's those who are forgiven much that love much. That if you experienced a lot of love, it's transformative, it's powerful. And if you've a neighbor or a friend or a family member, which all of you do, you know this is true. You don't fight fire with fire, you fight fire with love. Paul literally says that. When somebody is hating on you, you overwhelm them. You overcome the evil with good, with love. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. And this is what Paul is saying here. If you are in a place where you're thinking, because I like grace so much, maybe I should sin more so that grace can increase even more. If you're thinking that, if that question enters your mind, what is giving birth to that line of thinking isn't grace. That cannot be. It cannot come to pass. That can't exist. Nobody who is responding to actual real grace says, I really like this. Let me get it any which way I can, including sinning. It doesn't work that way. When you find yourself sinning, God meets you with grace. And when you are met by that grace, it causes you to want to repent. Anything that strays from that response is evidence that it's not grace you are responding to, but it's actually sin that you're responding to. Because sin begets sin. Grace begets repentance. And so, that question, shall we sin more, that grace may abound all the more, doesn't come from a place of grace. It doesn't even come from a neutral place, but it comes from a place of sin. You think you're just being logical and rational, but actually you're scheming from an impaired place. By the time you're already asking that, you're already acting as an addict, and your judgment is impaired. And I think Paul talks about addiction here. We'll get to that in a moment here. One example of this is uh, I experienced in um, my marathon running. Uh, they have a, I was taught, this is years ago, when I was first reading up on how to run marathons, uh, they said, um, 
Anything past mile 18, don't make any decisions. Because you're already so delusional. Don't quit your job or take a job. Don't get into a relationship or get out of one. Just don't do anything significant, mile 18 and beyond. Because you're just seeing things. You're thinking horribly distorted thoughts. Your judgment is impaired. You know what impaired judgment means? It means that by the time you're making the decision whether you are okay to drive or not, you don't have the capacity to make a trustworthy decision about whether you should drive or not. Right? And so if you are asking the question, should I sin more then? So that grace may abound all the more? If you find yourself asking that, you're gone already. Don't trust that. That cannot be. Another instance that I thought of is uh, this one time, this was uh, several years ago, a friend of mine from out of town was visiting. We had just spent the whole day, you know, hanging out and having a good time. And uh, we came home. And Susie was so happy to see this friend that I was hanging out with. And I was happy and he got to meet all, the, all my kids. And Susie just had a rough day. There's a pile of dishes and the house was a mess and there's a couple of tips with the kids and just I can just you know you just know because you're you're a husband and you come in and uh, you know I just felt like I wonder you know I, just, I feel like we need to go hang out this friend of mine and I you know and so I I, I just said to Susie. Susie, you know, he's just like visiting from out of town. I haven't seen him in so long. And, you know, we hung out a little bit. But like, you know, after dinner, like, could we just like hang out? And she looked at me like, have you no love in your heart? Like, are you blind? But she said, of course. And I just kind of think about that because it breaks my heart that my poor, absorbent, (laughs) gracious, supportive wife would say yes to such a ridiculous request. It would have taken me 30 minutes to, after dinner, just help out. And then she'd be more than happy. She'd force us to go hang out. Of course, you know, he was leaving the next... I mean, it was many ways the right thing to do. But by the time I was already asking that, I wasn't thinking about Susie. I had already made a decision that I want to go out. I... My mind, my heart, all that was bent, tweaked in a certain way that I wasn't actually asking, hey, honey, I want to be on the same side with you about this and make a good decision. My allegiance isn't to what I want to do, but it's to the truth of the matter. And I'm just inquiring, what do you think about John and I hanging out tonight? No, that wasn't it. I didn't care what the truth was. I didn't care what the situation called for. I wasn't caring about Susie either. I just wanted to go hang out. And I wanted out of the chore duties. And this was a way out. And so by the time that question is already being asked, Susie already knows the state of my heart. Doesn't she? It's already in the clear. That's manifesting what's already in me. Now, the, um, the second point is live. And the uh, question I want to ask is, what's manifesting? You know, what is in me? And I want to focus on verse 12 here. Paul says in verse 12, 
You know, I'm not used to reading out of a physical Bible anymore. I brought it up today because I don't have room on my screen here. Um, it's, the print is so small. I can't read it from here. I got to... <clears throat> Verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Such a great little word, lust. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. The word lust is the Greek word epithumia, and it's a two-part word, and it's formed with the uh, prefix epi, which literally just means over, and the word for desire, which is thumia. Epithumia, and it means to over-desire. And it's not necessarily a negative word. Paul uses it to describe his desire, for example, uh, to be with the Lord. He says, I long, or I epithumia, to be with God, but I'm going to be here because I love you all. And so he says, he asks God so that he, to be here because he cares for the church. But in his heart, he longs, or epithumia, uh, to be with the Lord. And uh, my practical definition uh, for this word uh, means to desire it twice. You know when you like something and then you like like something? You know when you like someone and then you like like someone? You know what I'm talking about? That's the word epithumia, appropriately translated as lust, I guess. Um, and I think this is the Bible's word for addiction. The Bible doesn't actually have the word addiction, um, but I think there's several times it talks about addiction, and this is one of them. Most of the times when you see this word epithumia, it's describing a very, very strong desire, something that you're desiring twice. Something you desire so much that it causes you to have your judgment impaired. You desire it so much that it consumes you and it's, it has a blinding effect such that you don't see the other things that are also relevant and important. That's, for me, exactly what an addiction is like. An addiction happens when you have pain. And then you have a coping mechanism for that pain. But then you begin to get attached to the coping mechanism itself, even beyond the alleviation of the pain that it was originally intended to alleviate. Did you all track with me there? Right? That means that you, uh, maybe you take pills because you have pain. And then you just get addicted to the effect that the pills have on you. And you're not even trying to address pain anymore. You just want the effect. And then you feel bad for that. And so you have an emotional reaction to the coping mechanism and your dependency on it. And then to alleviate that pain, you need more coping mechanism. And you start spiraling. And that's what we call an addiction. And so in the world of addiction... Uh, there are uh, a bunch of illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. Like alleviation of, alleviation of pain, that's real, that's good, right? That's normal and natural to want to lessen pain. But then to increase that pain by being addicted to the coping mechanism itself. An illegitimate way of meeting 
legitimate needs. Now, I'm not wanting to use this word addiction lightly. I'm not just throwing it around. I don't want to do that. Um, I'm old enough now to have a few friends who are recovering addicts, uh, various substances, including a pastor who's a recovering alcoholic. And it was a really powerful journey of him coming to terms with his dependency on alcohol, which runs in his family. Um, But there's uh, three things that I want to just list out for you uh, that I've noted just in my own experience. Again, I'm trying to stay practical, so I'm trying to stay away from, you know, um, I'm trying to be anecdotal here is what I'm saying. Three things that I have found in common with my friends who are recovering addicts. The first trait that I note about my friends with addictions are that there is a honesty and a humility about their own fragility. They are weak and they know it. It doesn't take much. None of us are as strong as we think we are. And they know that. And they seem to be in contact with that truth in a way that sometimes I am not. Right? The second trait that I note about them is their understanding of the necessity of hitting rock bottom. They know that they have to get to the bottom of themselves. In this passage, it's what Paul talks about as dying to self or the emptying of self. What happens when you empty yourself of yourself? You get to see the bottom of yourself. What's at the bottom of you? It's not pretty. And for you to be in contact with that truth, that reality, that is very sobering. Right? And I feel that they believe in the necessity of seeing the bottom of yourself. Because as long as you have some competence that you're clinging on to, some beauty that you're holding on to, and you put that forth, you never quite see how loved you are. Because God loves you to the bottom. But you can't know that because you're in denial. They, when they talk about the grace of God or people that love them, they have appreciation for their love. Because they know they're not putting forth some beauty or lovability. But it really is, they see them to the bottom and they love them to the bottom. Third trait is uh, they work very intentionally and hard at keeping self-deception in check. They understand our capacity for delusions. They just know it. There's my mind, my heart, my rationale, my judgments. All of these things ultimately can mislead me. I have not, I've tried my best, but I've made bad decisions. They know that they are a slave. And they're not free. And they experience that on a daily basis. So as a way to enter into this, I made a list of um, eight traits that I want to share with you about myself. These aren't so um, specific, so don't get nervous here. I know I have a tendency to overspill, but I'm going to... Um, uh, but I do want to share these things. These are true about me, and I've really thought about these things. And I have very specific examples that I could share. Uh, the first is this. I'm going first, and this is an invitation for you to do the same. Okay? Uh, first is, I am a sinner. 
And I'm talking about my nature. By nature, just as this passage says, I'm sinful. And when I say nature, I mean that in my mind, I know that the decision I'm about to make is not always the very beneficial one. Like if I just play out the pros and cons, cost-benefit analysis, I shouldn't do it. But I can't help it because it's my nature. I do dumb, stupid things knowingly. I make bad decisions that I pay for later, knowingly. There's something beyond my cognitive mind, and it's my instincts. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. Second thing is that I want to sin. And there I'm talking about my desire. Sin is fun. I like sinning. I like getting away with sinning. I have a dependency on sinning. It's sort of my way of life. It's my style. It's how I do things. It's how I solve problems. I like to solve problems by creating more problems, apparently. And it's true. I can't deny that the desire is there. Third, my judgment, just as I've been talking about, is impaired. I like to think it's not, but it is. I um, uh, came across several articles this year, this past year, uh, that were writing about research that they're sort of uh, coming to conclusion with. And it's um, showing this fact that smarter people are the dumbest people. It's true. If you have a device on you right now, go to Google and type in smarter people are and let Google suggest what the next word should be. And two or three down, their suggestion is dumber. (laughs) I'm not making this up. And you'll see articles from the year 2012 to 2013 because this is a recent study showing, all the research is showing that the smarter you are, the more biased you are towards yourself and your angle, the more tendency you have towards depression and sadness in your life. And smarter does not equal success. Isn't it true that if you are a place of certainty, you're not asking too many questions? I, I um, for a while, like when I was uh, in New York, I liked flipping cars. And so I would buy used Audi A4s on Craigslist and then get a good deal on it, do a little bit of work and then sell them. And then I would know what's wrong with them and stuff. I try to work on it. But the dumbest customers were the ones who already knew all about Audi A4s. They only saw what they wanted to see. But you know who are the scariest people to sell to? The dumb ones, the doubters, because doubters are the ones who kick tires, right? They're asking questions. And I don't like questions when I'm selling cars. They would say, oh, where's that from? What's that about? I don't know. I'm flipping the car. (laughs) But I didn't want to tell them I'm flipping the car, right? Just need to know basis, (laughs) In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 18 says this, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Here's Solomon, who is the wisest, smartest, wealthiest person, and he says, I'm going to try everything having to do with category A, 
to find the meaning of life. I'm going to try category B to find the meaning of life. And he says, category C, I'm going to pursue wisdom and knowledge to its utmost. I'm going to be the smartest man on the planet. And then he says, I'm going to find meaning in that. And he says, nope, no meaning of life in being smart. And this is what he concludes, that the smarter you are, the more you know, the more it hurts. And then thousands of years later, all our research is showing that Solomon was right. He was a smart guy. (laughs) Right? Next, uh, sin is an addiction. Meaning that sin are not just choices that I make. It's not like I have the option of choosing A and the capacity to choose B just as easily as option A. I don't have that. I have a bent. And I have desires. And I have a nature. And I want, I need, I choose to sin because I'm an addict. There's a dependency that I have on it. Next, sin has power over me. I'm not as free as I like to think I am. It's what here the Bible calls slavery. And we're going to see that slavery is not just a power, but it has a face. It's a person. We have a real enemy, Satan and his demons, who are keeping us enslaved. So there are many levels to this. But I recognize just on an experiential level that I'm under a power. And often it's stronger than I am. Okay, next, I hang on to delusions and convenient perspectives. It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I experienced it this way. I cannot be wrong. And I think I, I love my own angle on things. It's like my theory of the universe, my unifying, quintessential theory of the universe. It's this map I'm always building about people and about life and God and how everything works. You know, I, I read all these research articles and I just love it because I just plug, plug all that information into my map of the world. And I don't want to be convinced otherwise. I've invested a lot of time and energy make creating this map of the world. And a lot of it is delusional. <clears throat> Next, I need to hit rock bottom. Uh, in... Um, Addiction circle, recovery circles, there's a term called dry drunk. You know what a dry drunk is? A dry drunk is somebody who hasn't hit rock bottom yet. And so maybe they're not addicted to alcohol anymore, but they substituted alcohol for just another substance. So they're still dependent on their coping mechanism. They're no longer using alcohol as a way to cope, but they're certainly using other things. And that's what you call a dry drunk. And the only way to give yourself a shot at freeing yourself from being dependent in that way, to stop being a dry drunk, is to hit rock bottom, to see the very bottom of yourself, to see how truly depraved you are and how capable of evil you are. Capable of destruction for yourself and for those around you. And when you see that, it has a sobering effect. Now, In Christian circles, I think it's very easy for a Christian to be a quote-unquote a dry drunk or dry sinner. 
where you know you were a jerk before you met Jesus, and now you're a Christian jerk. There isn't really transformation in your life. And there's still an arrogance to you. Yeah, there's some things you've changed, but people around you know you haven't seen the bottom. You really don't understand how much evidence you have to be humble. And when I say grace, you're like, yeah, good word, I like it. And that's about it. You have an intellectual response to the word grace, but you don't understand the depth to which you are dependent on the grace of God. For you to see somebody who's in dire straits and not judge them, but think, but for the grace of God, there go I. And just know that. You are not better than anybody you've ever met. Do you know that? If you don't. And then lastly, I need to repent. I have a need to repent. There is change that I'm resisting. And the reason I resist this change is because the pain of change is still greater than the pain of not changing. Another way to say that is the pain of stasis is greater than the pain of change. So when you staying unchanged becomes unbearable and that pain is so great, you'll take anything else. That's when you're beginning to approach rock bottom. That's when repentance becomes a possibility for you. As long as your life is okay right now, as long as the relationship that you have with that person is fine, that's acceptable to you, that relationship cannot change. But when you say, God, I cannot relate this way to my wife anymore, this is unacceptable, this is horrible. Anything else, God, then you're beginning to understand what rock bottom is. Because then the pain of change is now less than staying there. I think this is what Paul calls dying to self. This is the, the crucifixion, the being crucified with Christ that Paul is talking about in this passage. How can you who died to sin continue in sin? How can you who was crucified with Christ let sin reign? How can you do that? You've already seen the bottom, he says. You already know the depth of your depravity. You already know how much that's undesirable. That way of living and thinking and being, that's unacceptable to you. And you reject it. How can you now go back to it? My problem, I think, with Christianity and myself is I actually haven't seen the bottom. I assume I have. I assume I'm changing. I assume I have died with Christ. But I haven't died yet, so I can't live. So have you seen the bottom? Let me conclude here. Um, What does repentance towards grace look like in real life? One real simple uh, illustration is um, what I would call moving from geocentric to heliocentric. Do you know who Galileo was? This guy right here. He um, was the first one to say, you know, I actually think the earth revolves around the sun. And people try to kill him for it. Right? Because the world believed that 
the sun revolves around the earth. Of course, geocentric, earth-centered, right? And he said, no, actually, I think the world is heliocentric. We revolve around the sun. And now we know that even the solar system itself is all revolving around something. And our galaxy itself is revolving around something. What's at the very, very center of the universe? That's a mystery we're still, we're still trying to solve. But Galileo said to his critics, he said, come, I want you to come over to my you know, uh, to my telescope, and I want you to have a look for yourself for clear evidence that our earth is revolving around the sun. And you know what people did? They refused to even have a look. They don't want to know. And so this is our bent towards ourselves. I think the basic problem that Paul is describing here is our addiction to self. We are dependent, chemically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically dependent in illegitimate ways to ourselves. Our basic problem is still, hundreds of years later, still geocentric. Do you realize that an orientation to ourselves is as silly as being geocentric? That's like me standing up and saying, I've got it. The sun revolves around the earth. That's so dumb. I would, that, that's, just not, that's not even worth saying right now. But that's how we live. Do you know that self-loathing is as self-centered as self-loving? That when you think, I hate myself, all I am is a sinner, that's very self-centered. You're still tripping on yourselves. As much as when you think, I haven't sinned since 1982. Both are completely delusional. And it's still self-centered. My part of my problem when I became a Christian is I imported all of these desires to save myself into Christianity. And I want peace and I want healing and I want rest and I want to be perfect and I want you to be perfect. And I just am a Christian with a microphone now to try to impose geocentrism on everybody else too. And Paul says, no, 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 let me, let me describe Christianity to you. Die to yourself. Your inability to forgive yourself is self-centered. God has forgiven you. What's the problem? Why are you still talking about self-condemnation? Where is that from? That's not from me. Get over yourself. Oh, I want peace in my heart. I want peace. Is peace your God? But I want peace. Can you live without peace if you have me? Can I be your peace? Will you die? Will you, you, the person, you die with Christ. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. Let Him live through. It's not about you anymore. Your feelings, your assessments, your perspectives, your judgments, impaired or otherwise, irrelevant. Die, live, die, live. One practical uh, application on how to begin walking in this way Um uh, in my own prayer time and thinking over the last several weeks, I've come to the conclusion that uh, I want to enter into a fast. November 8th 
to November 24th for 16 days. I'll start Friday evening, November 8th, and hopefully go through uh, November 24th evening. That's a Sunday. And I want to fast from food for 16 days. And I want to do that as a way to intentionally uh, experience a vacuum in me. So I'm going to not meet a need, to use our same addiction language here, as a way to create a vacuum so that God might fill that vacuum and I can experience a greater presence of God in my life. Now, from fasting in, my, in the past, I've learned that when that happens, it doesn't feel like anything special often. Sometimes it just feels worse. And what I have seen is that it's just kind of things coming up from the bottom. Remember, we want to see the bottom, right? And so as those things are coming up, it just looks bad. I feel bad. I have bad thoughts. But that's part of the cleansing, I think, process of fasting. And so I want to invite you to do that as a way to intentionally avail yourself to God. Now, I know you have other lives uh, and jobs and things that don't allow you to fast from food. So it doesn't have to be that. But pick something, I want to say, that you're going to actually feel. Like, if you don't watch TV, but you say, I'm not going to watch TV... That doesn't work. Or if you say, I'm going to fast from food from you know, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., that doesn't work either. Uh, you're not going to feel it, right? And so take a legitimate thing that you would experience uh, a vacuum from. And just for 16 days, it can be a meal a day. It can be maybe lunch. Every day you're going to skip lunch and you're going to spend that hour praying instead or going, going walking. You can even say, I'm going to walk for an hour instead of eating and I'm going to Uh, pray during that time. Or you can say, I'm going to do a reverse fast. You can say, I'm going to journal for 16 days every day. I'm going to take 30 minutes and I'm going to journal. Or you can say, I'm not going to not watch TV or I'm going to get off Facebook or something that you can handle. And uh, for some of you, maybe it is fasting from food. And as you enter into that, I want to say two things. Uh, Fasting is a process. It's larger than you. So don't fret the details. As you enter into it, let the fasting itself iron out some of your motives and other kinks. It's kind of like marriage. You can't be ready for marriage, but you can be ready to be made ready for marriage. Right? Uh, second thing I'd say about fasting is when fasting is done right, it's never convenient. Because you're actually fasting from something of value. And so it's always going to be inconvenient. Like I was looking at my calendar. Like my family's in town and I don't want to bring them into my own thing, you know. And I'm not eating and they want to eat. Or something like, I don't want to do that. I have all these meetings. I even have a pastor's thing. Like, that's going to be weird. I already had to cancel a lunch meeting. Say, hey, can we just meet in my office? You know, it's not convenient. But that's the nature of fasting from something that's actually disruptive to your life. Okay? So that's my invitation to practically experience this process and journey of dying to self and living to God by His grace. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, this word to us. I pray that it would come alive. It would jump off these pages, not in a black and white way, not in, a, in the stereotypical ways that we've heard in the past, uh, but in a way that's practical and true and real for us. We do want to die to ourselves. We are sick of ourselves. We do want to live to Christ. And we do want to live in grace. So God, do this work, we pray. We invite you. In Jesus' name.